listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and Leadership. Do you remember what songs you sang in church as a kid? Do you remember what songs you sang last week? There might be a bit of irony that you remember the songs you sang as a child or through your teen years better than what you sung on Sunday. And part of the reason is because you just sang them more frequently. In today's episode, we're going to talk about some of that phenomenon, a phenomenon of compression. What we're singing on a Sunday, we sing less frequently and over a shorter period of time than what was previously the case in worship services. If you've been in church or leading in worship for a while, you might already be familiar with that or at least have had a sense in it. Today's guests help us to unpack some of this experience. They help us to unpack it because they've done the research, not just with the data, but also with their own experiences. Today's guests are two contributing authors to a study on the life curves of worship music from data collected from CCLI. Today's guests are Pastor Mark Jalikar. Mark is pastor of worship and creative arts at Moncton Wesleyan Church, and he is joined by Dr. Mike Tapper. Mike is the chair of the Department of Religion at Southern Wesleyan University. They are both personal friends of mine and men I have learned alongside and learned from. And so today's episode is a real treat, not just for you as listeners, but for me as well, as I had a lot of fun chatting with them. In today's episode, you're going to hear two men who are keenly interested in the local church, in encouraging pastors, in understanding the nature of worship and the nature of ministry in today's Western context. Stay tuned for a word from our sponsor and then enjoy the episode. We are Wesley, and you belong here. I'm Gloria Zikiwe, and I am Wesley. My name is Chris, and guess what? I am Wesley. I'm Ryan Wagers, and I am Wesley. My name is Julius White, and I am Wesley. My name is Jen Peterson, and I am Wesley. We recognize this beautiful diversity that the Lord has called together that is Wesley. My name is Corey Merritt, and I am Wesley. I am Wayne Brown, and I am Wesley. I am Colleen Durr and I belong here. You belong here too, because we are Wesley. Well, 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 who let you two on this podcast anyway? Welcome, Mark. Welcome, Mike. For listeners, these are two of my friends, two of my buddies, and I'm grateful to have them on the podcast and grateful that you get to overhear their wisdom and research because it is actionable and it is interesting and it is rich. So Mark, Mike, welcome to the Western Seminary Podcast. Good to be here. so much. Yeah. Thanks for having us. So today we are talking about worship. Mike, you've been thinking and reading and reflecting and writing about worship for a long time, worship music and songs. Can you just start us out by telling us how did you get interested in this subject? Yeah, so my curiosity in a lot of ways was driven by conviction that emerged that maybe 10 years or so ago. And that conviction, Aaron, is that the music that we're actually singing in the churches that we're in, that it's actually a primary driver to the theologies that we're actually uh, that we're actually developing. We got all kinds of stats suggesting that our biblical literacy is quite low. It's only reducing. On the neurological side, and I wish I could press the reset button and study this more if I was younger, but neurologically, we know that there's all kinds of data suggesting that we're struggling with attention spans and our lessening of capacity to actually hold really, really complex ideas in tension. So that's lessening. And so we look for all kinds of different ways to sort of simplify 
an understanding of of the world and music i'm convinced specifically in our christian realm christian worship music i'm one of those people that are convinced that increasingly it provides one of the really really great ways for us to make sense of the world and so the theology that we're actually singing and developing in the music that we're singing i think we're actually acquiring a functional theology out of that so much so that often say in contexts within churches that it's not actually the lead pastor that's the primary theological gatekeeper in our churches it's actually people like mark who are leading the music it's the worship pastor who's actually reinforcing i'll borrow from jamie smith the book you are what you love where he talks about micro liturgies it's actually these micro liturgies and these songs that really are having a profound effect on us maybe even more than we actually realize and so that's a conviction that has driven me here over the last what 10 years i guess uh, as it relates to the research it's really interesting i grew up in the church you and i grew up not that far apart and and similar church background and it really is something whenever i think about moments of reflection upon god that are not specifically informed by something that i'm reading whether scripture or whether a book or something else but i'm reflecting upon god i'm praying and what comes out of me are the hymns that we've sung or choruses right this is where my mind goes to and this is what what is overflowing in my heart when i'm in that kind of worship space so just experientially i absolutely get what you're talking about and why this is so important and of course one of the challenges that the contemporary church in the west is faced with is what is happening in the worship service because there's a, a part of drawing a crowd, of creating an atmosphere, of facilitating different elements of worship, but maybe aren't always paying attention to what is happening neurologically or what is happening in terms of spiritual formation with the listener. So I'm glad that the Holy Spirit convicted you to do a deep dive into this. Mark, let me, let me bring this question to you. So you and Mike have been working on a recent project together where you're studying the life curves, and that's a, that's a quote, the life curves of CCLI songs sung in churches. For listeners who don't know, what is CCLI? What does life curves mean? And what did you find out? So CCLI is essentially a copyright, a church copyright licensing company that memory serves, Mike can correct me, I think was started in 1988 or possibly 89. You might be thinking, my copyrights, why do we need copyrights? Well, I mean, all material is, all original material has copyrights on it. It's just the way it is. You can choose to waive those, but anyway, we'll leave that decide what ccli does uh, effectively is they track churches usages of new so songs that were effectively written within the last 50 years because that's usually how long a copyright lasts uh, and then make sure that they can actually get the money into the license holders for those songs so, so they're sort of like a gatekeeper if you could say because they're, they're kind of keeping an eye out for the churches to see what they're using and then making sure that those those people and the songwriters themselves end up getting compensated for that so because of that they are constantly tracking what churches do and then they actually release lists that say you know here's the top songs that actually got a ccli top 100 maybe people are familiar with like a billboard uh, top 100 or like a hot 100 or whatever so there's a ccli version of that so mike a few years ago did a project where he was looking at the lyrics of songs uh, you know kind of doing a deep dive and comparing kind of modern worship songs and the lyrics of them with hymns and out of that kind of through some relationships that he built he was gifted with like a just a data dump of all the older lists of CCLI uh, top 100s going back to 1989. Uh, it was a lot of data. If it was like 
analog instead of digital, like you could like weigh down a, a ship with this content, right, as an anchor. So a couple of like really bright, bright people, uh, Lisa and Charlton got together and Mike did some work with them and started to kind of collate this stuff out and start to kind of put it on spreadsheets and start to kind of comb through the data. And uh, to me, when I look at it, it's basically like the matrix, like I just ones and zeros and I can, can't really hard, make heads or tails of it. But after a long time of them staring at it, they were able to start to see some patterns. And these patterns that are merged are effectively what we are calling the life curves of, of the song. So that's kind of what you're alluding to. So the life curves themselves, kind of what they are is, it's a curve, you can kind of picture uh, something rising and then something, some falling, I guess. And so we looked at essentially the entry point of these songs on the charts. We looked at how quickly they rose to the top. We looked at the length of their time on the top, that's their, their peak. And then we looked at their fall, how quickly they fell. And then later on, we also kind of analyzed their publication date. So when the songs were written, as opposed to when they actually entered the charts. So that was sort of like a secondary thing that we looked at near the end. And so if you kind of remove that one, basically the life curve itself is exactly what I described. When the song hits the charts, how long it's on the charts, how high it gets on the charts, etc., etc. And now I, I can't tell you how it all happened because again, it's all gobbledygook to me. But I can tell you what we what we found when we were looking at it. So, whenever you tell me of the ones and zeros, I'm drinking my Starbucks coffee here, and my mind says, you know, it's all ones and zeros. But I don't care, right? If we're in the matrix ourselves, there's a part of this that we are in a matrix in worship music because there's there's inputs that are coming to us. There's all kinds of people that are doing work and finding and funding music and musicians and then are finding ways to get that into the minds and hearts of people who are choosing the songs right that like there is an actual story and event that's going on around here and and behind all this and it's not just ones and zeros of course but it, there is strategy to it and there is inputs that we just don't really think about right we go to church we sing the songs and we're not really paying attention we're trying to pay attention to god we're not paying attention to all the things that are facilitating our worship Thank you, gentlemen, for doing this work to kind of get at the story that's going on. I know that some of this is coming out in publications, and we'll we'll make sure to add those to the show notes in, in due time when those are out. This might come out before those. So thanks for giving us a sneak peek. Mike, this question to you, what stood out to you in this project? Or maybe I could say what surprised you from what you were finding? Yeah, a few things I would say at this point, Aaron. First of all, I'd say that it was a reminder to me of the context in which people like Mark and some of your other listeners, if you're a worship leader, it reminded me of the context that these folks are actually swimming in. I think uh, that it is a profound and amazing privilege that Mark has to be a worship leader and those of your listeners who are, but it's also a burden. I don't mean that in a maybe as negative a sense as, I, as it might be interpreted, but it's also a burden to be a worship pastor these days. I was reminded that you can only work with a song corpus that you actually have at your disposal. It's easy for, you know, academics like me to kind of look at things and go, well, you know, why aren't we singing more songs about X or why is it like this? But worship leaders who are in the trenches, like day in and day out, a week in and week out, I had a gained uh, appreciation, I guess, as we worked through the data. I was able to think, gosh, it's an amazing privilege and it's an amazing, amazing burden. So that that definitely stood out. Truthfully, Aaron, as we entered into this project, we entered in with a research hunch, just like uh, most research. We anticipated that there was going to be compression as we looked at the earlier songs, like today's songs versus songs from a few decades back. We, an we anticipated that intuitively, I think, 
probably all of us, maybe even as you're listening, you, you think intuitively, well, of course there's, there's compression, but I think I could speak on behalf of all of the contributors and say that we were still quite surprised at how significant that compression and that shortening actually was. I mean, we're talking about compression. Mark just described the rise plateau or crest and fall. We're talking about compression at about three times the rate over the last 20 years. That's pretty significant. So much, much steeper rises of songs today, a lot shorter peaks, a lot more rapid falls. So what, what we're seeing is songs are actually coming and going really, really fast these days. And of course, there's all kinds of different implications to that. So in particular, something that was really peculiar to us, we need to do some more research, frankly, on this, but something was happening between 2010 and 2014 that really, really sped up that compression process. Now, we've been really, really careful. Uh, Mark will tell you and all the contributors will tell you that we've been really, really careful to, to try not to be too definitive in suggesting like the why or the cause for that compression. Frankly, we think that there's a whole bunch of different things that probably all collided all at once. Technology, social media, as you think back to the early 2000 teens, the industry, dynamics in and around the industry, stuff that was happening in and around the churches, all kinds of different things, all kind of colliding together. But there's no denying there that, that something pretty significant was happening there and our data seems to, to defend that. So that was a bit of a surprise, that, that kind of stood out. I guess I would say too, and this shouldn't really come as a surprise to me after working with this sort of research for the last few years. I'm still always struck though by how much more research actually needs to be done and completed. I mean, we got into this thing and we sort of dove pretty deeply into the data and it wasn't really all that long before we, we discovered a whole host of research angles still yet to be considered. So research, for example, on like publisher and distribution trends for some of these top songs, the impact of media, at least to my knowledge, in large part, a lot of that stuff is still largely unchartered. And so I'm humbled, I'm both humbled and surprised, I guess I would say, by the work that actually still needs to be done to really fully grasp the complexities of the music consumption in our churches today. The researcher's mind and heart comes out there. We think we're seeing this. No doubt there's several factors we haven't yet seen. I certainly appreciate that. And as, and as a person who studies leadership, you know, without having looked at it, I think your hunch that there's all kinds of things that kind of collide or coalesce at the same time. And people don't know how things are going to coalesce, right? Like don't, they don't know how things will, will cooperate together. They don't know if they're going to collide and be in opposition to each other. These systems that get that emerge as various factors are brought together have surprising insights. So I'm grateful you're doing the work and I would be really interested to see how this is ongoing. Mike, you mentioned something that kind of leads into the next question because you mentioned how tough it is to be a worship leader. The explosion of technologies lets everybody in a sense be a worship leader. We can be our own leaders of our own worship preferences, which is different from being a worship leader, but in the actual experience that we come into church or we're looking for a worship experience online or whatever else it is, it does kind of allow that armchair worship leader kind of experience which is just, Mark, has to be really difficult. So let me bring this question to you. You have been a worship leader for a number of years, and you've consistently brought a theological mind to this aspect of pastoral
pastoral ministry and leadership. I know you've got the musical gifts and talents, you've got the leadership gifts and talents, and those coalesce in your worship leading work, but you are consistently bringing a theological mind to the event that you're leading, but also to what's happening even in the preparation. How can a worship leader get started to bring their own theological reflection into their work? You've been doing this for a while. How did you get started? How can somebody else kind of get started if they're saying, yeah, I need to pay attention. If Mike is right, that, that I play a role in the theological formation of my church, how can they get started? I don't know, Google? Um, that's the it's a joke, but it's also kind of like the it's the rub is that um, we have literally the world at our fingertips, right? Like you just type in how to start thinking more theologically about my worship leading and there will be a 13 million results that will come back. And so Mike mentioned earlier about what sometimes feels like a limited song corpus or songbook, which is is actually true. I think most of us feel like you know, we don't necessarily have a song to sing about sanctification on Sunday. And yet, beyond the shadow of a doubt, if we looked, we would know that there's hundreds of songs, even contemporary songs that are about it. So the internet and searchability is both a blessing and a curse, I think, when it comes to how to start with this kind of thing. And so what I'll say is probably a controversial statement because because I love controversial statements, uh, but no, but because I'm actually, I'm quite ecumenical in how I think. Like I, I really love to think of the church as, as very broad and of each of us having kind of different flavors and different ways of talking about and thinking about our relationships and our interactions with God. I love the church. I love it. But what I would say is I think a great place to start is to just kind of dig into the theology of your particular denomination. So like if you are leading in a Baptist church or if you're leading in a Wesleyan church or if you're leading in a Presbyterian church, we kind of sometimes have this. I don't want to speak into this across the board, but my, my impression is that there's kind of a homogenized kind of evangelicalism in many respects. And so... The reason that this data is interesting is we can't definitively say that every denomination and by no means would we say that every single church is following these same trends that we've outlined. We're saying that across the board, across North America, and actually this is global, but I think it's most particularly we're seeing it in the West, that this is the kind of trend we're seeing because more and more churches are end up, end up having essentially the same kind of worship, the same kind of experience together. And so if you take the time to dig into why your church actually even exists, <laughs> like take a look at your disciplines, take a look at your, your books and kind of figure out like, there's actually probably a lot of them, there's even service orders. We probably don't use them, but they probably exist. And they probably give you some hints at why we might want to be thinking about leading certain kinds of ways. It's not gonna tell you whether you're gonna wanna lead this song this week versus this song this week. Some churches actually have that level of detail most of them won't but they'll tell you what are the kinds of things that your denomination whether this is 10 years ago or 300 years ago thought was important for your congregation to think through on this sunday or in this month or this season right so to kind of start to become familiar with those things and you can disagree with them like the first thing is just look and then you can start to ask all kinds of questions look before you leap i guess that'd be the one thing that i would say it's worthwhile, not so that you can become a dogged denom denominationalist, but so that you can understand the why behind what you're doing. And then you can feel free once you've educated yourself to maybe ask some questions and then look for good content. I was going to say read a lot, but I do most of my reading by listening, 
whatever it takes for you to kind of get on. I mean, it's great to expose yourself to all kinds of new worship music that's, worship music that's coming out. You will never run out. Uh, your cup will run over uh, if you decide to do that. And that's really good to keep yourself abreast of what's happening. It's also kind of terrifying because there's just, like I said, it's an onslaught. But as a worship leader, you're not, this is a weird thing. In our, in our neck of the woods in, in where I live, which is in Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada, as of this date, November 10th, in the year of our Lord, 2021, there are an awful lot of churches in our area that are, we're not in, allowed to encourage congregational singing. I'm a worship leader. What are you supposed to do? Well, it turns out that worship is not actually synonymous with singing. It interacts with singing, no question. Um, but this is a time and a place for which I am deeply grateful for the fact that I actually have a somewhat broader understanding of what corporate worship really is. So I love that you mentioned giving a place to start whenever there's infinite places to start, almost. Infinity minus one places to start <laughs> with the internet. I'm reminded of Seth Godin who says, we don't need more libraries. We need more librarians, right? People who can get us started, get it, who can get us acting in the way. And, the, and what you've given is right on. Like, what's the the tradition? What's the theology of the church where you are? And get to learn that and get to know it. And interestingly, you might find out that you can lead worship in a way that gets at the soul of the church because of the research that you're doing. It doesn't have it doesn't have to be found out there. It might be something that starts in here. And no doubt there's a story, there's a there's a soul that is extended through time for that church that you can start to be leading in a way that's authentic and genuine and, and hopefully theologically grounded. The thought that came to mind connected with that, right? Given that kind of specific approach, is whenever we don't do that, then we give up signature elements of local churches, right? And, and we actually don't have a diversity of worship. We have the exact opposite, right? We start to have monoculture in worship. I just came through a, a doctor of ministry class, and we were talking about what happens whenever you have leadership practices that start to go out and flow out. These best practices get repeated all over the places. You get McDonald's in every, in every country, right? In every city. And here's the irony there's an element of comfort that comes whenever you go to other countries and you're like, oh, I know that. I know that Big Mac. I know what that Big Mac is going to taste like. There's an element of comfort that comes whenever I go into a bunch of different churches and I'm like, I can sing the songs. I know what it's going to be like. I know what the flow of the service is going to be. I know roughly what the sermon is going to be about. I know roughly the form it's going to take, right? There's an element of comfort that comes with that, but it's also... To me, there's something significant that's lost, right? There's something significant that's lost whenever we don't have the signature element of learning how somebody else worships the same God that I do, the triune God. But whenever our, all our worship starts to get McDonaldized, right, made made kind of the same, there's something that really is lost, even while there is something that's comfortable. And it's an irony. It's a tension. It's an irony. It's something is lost and something is gained all at once, right? But it is something to pay pay attention to. One of the things that I appreciate you both have done in this podcast is just to be sensitive to people who are listening in and they listen to this on a Thursday or a Saturday or a Monday or whoever knows when, but Sunday's coming. Their next formative element of their work is coming. And I say performative in that there's actions to take and there's a performance to give. It's not, it's not that it's just that, but it is that in whatever else more it is, it also is that. And so they're on the clock, right? Something is coming their way and you're sensitive to the pressures that come with it. 
I'd love for you to each give a word of encouragement, right? What is something that out of all of your research has only heightened your sensitivity to what these pastors are going through and what some of the responsibilities are out of this extended, both theoretical knowledge, but also practical knowledge that you both have. What's a word of encouragement that you would give to worship pastors and worship leaders in the local church? Let's go first to you, Mark, and then final word to Mike. The one thing when you start to rip this apart is you find that when you peel a, a layer off of the onion, there's there's another layer to pull off. And if, you know, I can totally understand that what it could sound like is a, a whole lot of onion layer peeling, nitpicking is, is kind of, so spoiler alert, a lot of people, when they look at the full data, full research are going to go, like, we're going to see there's some positive things, but they're also going to go, oh, I feel like in general, there's something negative or there's something foreboding about the kind of rate of change that we're going through. And that's not necessarily the reason that we're releasing this data. Um, it's just because we really want to kind of help people understand what's happening in the broader culture in the church. But even though it's possible that we could maybe, you know, look to make some changes to slow our, our rate of change, to maybe make it so that songs are a little bit more sticky and thus the concepts and the principles of the songs would become a little bit more sticky, a little bit more heart implanted. Regardless, that people are connecting with your church, whether your church is a church of five or a church of 5,000, that they are doing that, if that's still happening for you, is a tremendously life-changing thing. During the, early on in the pandemic, uh, my pastor shared with me this data. And I, unfortunately, I, I tried to do a quick look for it before I got here and I wasn't able to get it. But it, it's reliable. I've seen it. Take my word for it. Uh, it was essentially just like a wellness exam. Like, you know, tell me all this is near the tail end of 2020. Here's all the things that you could possibly be talking about. You know, your emotional health, your your mental health, your, your relational health, your financial health, your physical health. Rate them all. How are you doing 2020 versus 2019? It was also kind of like broken down about your lifestyle and what you do. Across the board, as you would imagine, 2020 looked at least a value point lower uh, than 2019. The literal only area that seemed to have a hold steady and in some some cases a little bit of a bump in terms of their mental health were people who not just occasionally but regularly engaged in faith services. So there was just something about being with God's people and being with God week in and week out that made a tangible and lasting difference in the lives of these people. The songs that we pick are probably they probably never have been perfect and they probably never will be. The things that we say between songs will definitely never be perfect. But just that we are there providing a place both online and in person for people to be able to connect with their faith community has an impact. And so feel encouraged in that. You know, don't ever stop chasing what could be better, seeking God for how we could do things better, how we can better service people, but being faithful is a lot better than being ideal and not being there. As worship leaders and pastors, I'd want you to be reminded that you actually matter. I'm guessing and suspecting that most people, at least since the Enlightenment, kind of presume that they're the center of the universe <laughs> and uh, that their particular moment in history is the most important moment in history. It seems, though, that there really is a certain level of criticalness. Maybe pandemic does this, a global pandemic does this, but there is a certain level of criticalness, I think, to the time and the day that we actually live in. And like all of us, I think we're all observing within the pastoral ranks a certain level of weight these days. 
heavy weight, the heavy burden that is felt in and around these days. I think in evangelicalism as well, we're dealing with all kinds of dynamics in and around identity and what that actually looks like. So there's a lot of different things that are taking place. And it's within this context, I would want to say to pastors and worship leaders that you matter, that your decisions actually matter, that the ministry, Mark just alluded to it, whether it's five or 5,000, that it that it really does matter, that your life actually matters. And I don't mean that in like a, a passive aggressive sort of way that your listeners might think, you know, work harder. Rather, I would say that it's like that obedience in the same direction is what I would want to encourage uh, people to hear today. Eggheads like me in the academy, we see the hard, hard work that you're actually doing and, and we genuinely appreciate it. Finally, I would just say, find your people. <laughs> um, naturally, over the last couple of years, just a variety of different things have perpetuated that sense of isolation and siloing and loneliness that people actually feel. And maybe that's created a certain level of habits for some people. Some of those habits might be good habits. Some of them might be unhealthy habits, but I think we can all agree that going it alone, it's just not sustainable. I heard someone recently say, pastors are heroic, but heroic isn't daily sustainable. <laughs> Maybe there's some sustainability by finding like healthy community, actually talk about things like trends and music and how to express some of those frustrations with your people and how to share some of those ideas and some of those dreams that you actually have. Truthfully and honestly, that's really why Mark and the contributors of this project, that's really why we did what we did. It wasn't to hammer contemporary Christian music or worship music. It really genuinely was to encourage and to facilitate the sort of dialogue that we're actually having here at this moment and your listeners are listening to. All that we've done is created a platform, we hope, for the sort of healthy discussion to occur that we hope will take place. Joining us today have been Dr. Mike Tapper and Pastor Mark Jalikar. Gentlemen, thanks so much for, well, first, thanks for your friendship. You both have been friends to me along the way and been really good listening ears. Thank you for your keen minds and open hearts and encouraging spirits that really gave shape and weight to this research. And thanks for taking the time to invest in the listeners today as well. We certainly appreciate it. God bless you, man. Thanks so much. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. You make conversations like this possible, so thank you so much. The Wesley Seminary Podcast exists to introduce topics and resources for fruitful ministry. I trust we have done just that today. Certainly couldn't have done this work without Connor Reed. Connor, thank you so much for your production work. Love being your teammate. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, Connor. Trust you all to have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary. 